Hi, and welcome back to the Spartan History Podcast. This is episode 11, A Hero's Ending. This will be the second and final episode of my inquiry into the Late Bronze Age collapse. Having described the other major players in the Eastern Mediterranean, we can now return to a place I'm a little more comfortable with, Greece. Don't get me wrong, as fun as the last king of the Hittites, Sopiluliuma's name is to say, I'm much happier being back amongst my Mycenaeans. Over the years, I've always been amazed at the parallels between modern events and ones from history. Bitcoin bubbles and the Dutch tulip mania of the 17th century, the historic and repetitive attempts at foreign invasion of Afghanistan, the rise of demagoguery within the American Republic of today, with the same populist rising of late Republican Rome. I could quite literally go on all day, but must, despite being well aware of historical comparisons, admit to being amazed all over again as I research the Bronze Age. Many of the ills besetting that age are reflected in our own world. Natural disaster, climate change, and the mass migration of disparate peoples from west to east mirrors so dreadfully the east-west movement of the Syrian refugee crisis. Moreover, that crisis too had its genesis in a prolonged drought stretching from 2006 to 2010. It's analogous events such as these that bring our two worlds closer together through time and understanding. As I move through in the description of my hypothesis and reasoning, I'll be using that type of correspondence to fill in the blanks where archaeological and scientific research falls silent. To recap briefly, in last month's episode we took a close look at the Hittite and Egyptian empires, along with the island of Cyprus and some of the various powers in the Levant, paying particular attention to the differing forces behind regional societal collapse, drought, famine, war, and migrations, all accreted to established powers of the time and culminated in their decline, and in many cases, their collapse. As mentioned previously, this confluence of doom seemed to fall on either side of the 1200 BCE mark. We finished with the Mercurial Sea Peoples falling by land and sea upon a vacillating Egyptian empire in 1177 BCE. The invaders were beaten on both occasions by Ramesses III. The victories would however prove to be the straw that broke the dromedary's back, to do credit to Egypt's native variety of camel. Now, in order to understand a little more about these mysterious invaders, we need to go back, not to the future, but to the past. By 1177, Mycenaean society had irrevocably declined and collapsed, as I believe a big part of the Eastern Mediterranean activities of the Sea People had its genesis in Mycenaean societal failure. We'll go back and look at the events that transpired to bring Homer's heroes to their knees. As last time when we looked at the factors contributing towards the late Bronze Age collapse, this episode will look specifically at the conditions that caused Mycenaean civilization's capitulation in Greece. When we look at collapse itself, as a function, there are five topics that I believe directly affected the period's Greeks. Resource depletion, in this instance famine, natural disaster, external invasion and internal strife, and lastly, economic uncertainty. I'll expand upon those points now to show how each played its part in the destabilisation of society. Greece, now, as back then, is an extremely mountainous and rocky landscape. Arable land is in such short supply that the root cause in much of the intercity conflict over the ages was a simple land grab. In fact, only 16% of the country's overall land mass is considered suitable for farming. As population increases, more and more is demanded from this rather small slice of fertile ground. Any destabilisation of central government or rural strife can have massive implications for food security. As recently as 1941, the country experienced famine during the period of Nazi occupation in World War II. 
Known as the Great Famine, the double pressures of German plunder and an Allied blockade saw the country unable to feed its local population. The result was over 300,000 dead from starvation and the disease that came in its wake. The recurrent situation in Greece is such that at regular intervals throughout its history when the country proved too hostile for life, many of its people leave to seek their fortunes elsewhere. The fact that even the word diaspora, our modern term for mass migrations, is a Greek word, speaks to the history that that land has had. Another great example is the period between the 8th and 6th centuries BCE known as the colonisation phase. During this period, the city-states of the Aegean, sometimes individually and sometimes as a joint venture, founded several hundred new cities dotting every shore of the Mediterranean and Black Seas. The reasons varied from political to social, but the undercurrent was the need for more space. From the 8th century onwards, the Greeks were climbing out of the Dark Age. Population was increasing as centralised governments began to strengthen. The middle class of small farm holders emerged in larger numbers and required more and more land to farm. The colonisation phase was born. This is the consequence of stable governments reacting to the human threat of overpopulation. The Mycenaeans had no such luck in that they also dealt with the looming threat of overpopulation, but the gods saw fit to bestow upon them natural disaster as well. We saw previously that recent studies have proven that there was a persistent drought and subsequent famine afflicting the eastern Mediterranean at the close of the Bronze Age. With population inflated due to an extended period of relative stability and affluence, food shortages would have been disastrous. We've got to remember that looking back, it's so easy to imagine that these events all happening in sequence or even simultaneously, but famines and people starving to death don't happen overnight. The situation was prolonged and the Greeks ingenious. Whilst many perished, many more simply packed up and left. This type of famine-driven migration is a common reoccurrence throughout history. The most prominent example that comes to mind is the Irish potato famine of 1845-49. to Ireland at this stage was a monoculture due to the potatoes' uptake as a cheap source of calories. The crop itself had low genetic diversity having descended from a small number that were introduced. This created a genetic bottleneck and left the crop exposed to foreign diseases, like the introduced potato blight. Having originated in Mexico, the mould travelled via the sea lanes and wrought havoc on European crops. The result was that over a million Irish men, women and children died of starvation, but more than 1.5 million emigrated to many different parts of the world. Already strained by the burden of overpopulation, estimated decreases in yield from 15,500 tonnes to 4,500 per annum made everyday life in Ireland untenable. The situation that emerged echoes what I believe keenly to be very similar to the one faced by the late Mycenaeans. If we take a look at the archaeological record of Agamemnon's capital city, Mycenae, we can get a sense of the results of rural strife and discord. At roughly around the same time conceived for the Trojan War, 1250 BCE, it's evident that all is not well. In the city surrounding the walls of the citadel, there is evidence of destruction by fire of several houses and buildings. Whatever the cause of the damage, it coincides with the massive upgrade in defences of the Mycenaean Cyclopean walls along with the construction of the monumental, bastion-style lion gate entrance. Along with the extension of the defensive perimeter, the Mycenaeans constructed a cistern within to provide them with a safe source of water during siege. Clearly something spurred the ruling elite into the fortification of the period. As we know of no external invasion, it's safe to assume the general lawlessness and insurrection of local populations is a probable cause. There are also some similar upgrades at other Mycenaean population centres at roughly the same time. 
Athens and Tyrans are examples of this and hint that the disturbance was over a broad geography and not localised to Mycenae alone. It's easy to look at the Iliad, or the Greco-Persian Wars, and see a united Greece driving on towards its collective endeavours. These events are the exceptions and not the general rule. For most of Greece's history, the city-states were at each other's throats, and there was little unity apart from a shared culture. We have no Linear B evidence to support a famine causing major disruptions. The hard numbers for population decline, as indicated by archaeology, leave little doubt in our minds that calamity was afoot. At the turn of the 13th century BCE, there were as many as 320 occupied settlements in Greece, yet by the turn of the 12th, there were only 130 such places. A precipitous decline which by the 11th century only worsened with barely 40 occupied settlements at that time. It has been estimated that overall population fell anywhere from 75-90% to during the Bronze Age collapse. As in the Irish famine, some of this decrease can be laid at the feet of death from starvation, but a great part of it can be attributed to migration. We'll get to the migratory evidence later, but for now we'll turn to the events Mother Earth uses to remind us of our insignificance, natural disaster. For an example of how catastrophic disaster affects civilization, we need only turn our gaze south into the Cycladic Island group and go back to around the year 1600 BCE. Ancient Thera, now known as Santorini, is one of the jewels in the crown of the Hellenic archipelago. Its beauty today belies a destructive and tectonic past. At the time of the eruption, the island most likely resembled a conical volcano rising from the depths of the Mediterranean. It blew its top in what is largely believed to have been the strongest explosion ever witnessed releasing the energy of several hundred nuclear bombs in a fraction of a second. The plume, scientists estimate, shot some 35 kilometres into the air and the eruption released over 100 cubic kilometres of pyroclastic material into the atmosphere. Like in Roman Pompeii, beneath the layers of pumice, archaeologists discovered a well-preserved Bronze Age settlement named Akrotiri on Santorini. Due to the style of fresco and the Linear A tablets discovered, the city is believed to be an outlier of the Crete-based Minoan civilization. Obviously, life ceased to exist on Santorini the moment the volcano erupted, but this disaster had far-reaching effects and is at least in part responsible for the collapse of the Minoans. At about the same time as this catastrophic event, a slow degradation and decentralization of power began on Crete, culminating in Mycenaean capture of the island in the 14th century BCE. Looking at the early Greek legends, it seems that for a time at least, the Archaeans of mainland Greece were at one stage in vassalage to the Minoans. The legend of Theseus and the Minotaur bears this out quite clearly in that Athens provided regular tribute to King Minos, who ruled from Knossos. It isn't clear what flipped this state of affairs and eventually led to Greek dominance on the island, but I would suggest the estimated 35 to 150 metre high tsunamis raised by the explosion might have had something to do with it. There's no evidence to suggest that there was any land-bound destruction at the time, but as Crete was the dominant maritime power in the Aegean, the loss of its entire fleet and port facilities destabilised the Minoans' culture. It's a classic black swan theory event, impossible to predict prospectively, but in retrospect, this natural disaster cannot be ignored. Just so, there is strong evidence for tectonic disturbance on mainland Greece during the closing phases of the Bronze Age. Not from volcanoes. Mother Nature is anything but one-dimensional. This time, it was earthquakes. It's difficult to determine whether a city was destroyed by an earthquake or by man, but natural disasters have a few hallmarks that are fairly indicative of nature's hand. 
fortification walls knocked out of alignment and human moraines buried under rubble being two of the more obvious. These and other markers are just what archaeologists have discovered at a great many sites in Greece and across the Mediterranean. The Mycenaean cities of Mycenae, Tiryns, Thebes, Pylos, Therapne in Sparta and Gla all suffered from this type of damage. More broadly, some of the cities we looked at last time in the Eastern Med were also afflicted. Hattusa, the Hittite capital, and Ugarit, to name a few. Let's try this out. Archaeoseismologists. Phew. That is, the people who study historical earthquakes have recently proposed an interesting theory regarding regional damage. It even has a name worthy of Poseidon. Earthquake storms. Earthquakes in general are caused when pressure is released from faults in the Earth's crust. The friction caused by rubbing together of these continental shelves often results in spectacular, though rather localised damage. Earthquake storms occur when pressure is built up over a larger area of the fault line and released in an unzipping fashion over an extended period of time until the fault is free from strain. Unlike an earthquake, which happens as plates quickly and suddenly rub over and under each other, earthquake storms are the result of a gradual build-up in pressure with little to no visible activity. The strain is unwound in a series of earthquakes, each one triggering the next rather than in a single event. One has been occurring across the so-called North Anatolian Fault which runs across North Turkey. Beginning in 1939, a series of large earthquakes has run east to west along the fault, culminating in a massive quake in 1999 that struck Istanbul, killing 17,000 people. It's unclear whether or not this storm has abated as the area of concern now lies beneath the Aegean. This fault line is one of three that concern the eastern Mediterranean with the East Anatolian and Dead Sea faults delineating the region. With all 50-odd Bronze Age cities that have evidence of earthquake damage falling within the bounds of these three faults, it's possible that all three were unloading pent-up tectonic pressure at the close of the Bronze Age. The experts point to these different sites, geographically dispersed, as evidence for an increased period of seismic activity from about 1250 through to 1175 BCE. With damage occurring over an extended period of time and across a broad area, it would be impossible for one earthquake to be responsible. Therefore, an earthquake storm has been proposed. Way back in episode 1, I spoke of the possibility the Trojan horse was a metaphor for an earthquake, with Poseidon being the god of both horses and earthquakes. Indeed, the archaeological layer known as Troy 6, which directly precedes what is believed to be Homeric Troy, was destroyed, at least partially, by an earthquake in 1250 BCE. If we look at two of the more prominent Mycenaean cities of the Bronze Age, Mycenae and Tiryns, 11 skeletons to date have been found buried under fallen walls and buildings. Although not an alarmingly high number of dead, cities were very different in the Bronze Age. Whereas in the modern era, collapsed buildings and overall high-density populations can result, as in the case of Istanbul, in inordinately high numbers of casualties. That we find any remains seemingly buried during Bronze Age earthquakes is a good indication of their presence, and that they were severe enough to prevent any type of recovery operation. Considering the Mycenaeans paid so much attention to burial practices, this is significant in and of itself. Whilst it is highly unlikely that any of these seismic events caused overwhelming, civilization-collapsing damage, we have to accept that stacked onto the protracted famine sweeping the eastern Med, the land was becoming increasingly hostile. If only it were just those two factors that concerned the Mycenaeans, then perhaps their culture might have withstood. But they also had to contend with conflict both internal and external by nature. But before we go into that, 
a quick word from my sponsors. Are you interested in ancient history and the occasional pun? If so, Ancient History Hound is for you. Hi, my name's Neil, and I'm the host of Ancient History Hound, a podcast which covers a range of topics across ancient Greece and Rome. Whether you're someone new to it all, or a seasoned veteran, I've got you covered. Find Ancient History Hound wherever you get your podcasts from. Alternatively, visit my website, ancientblogger.com, or find me on Twitter, at ancientblogger. Okay, so not really my sponsor, but a great podcast all the same. Neil has some amazing vlogs as well. I particularly recommend his recreation of the Battle of the Trebia Ford using toy elephants. It's brilliant. Where were we? Ah yes, war. Even the most cursory of glances at archaic and classical Greece reveals a world engulfed in internecine conflict and riven by internal discord. Greeks of that time even had a great word for civil war, stasis, or stasis in English. They mean it quite literally in that for the classical Greeks the most important organ of statehood was the polis. When society had dissolved into civil war, the polis ceased to function as it should and went into a state of stasis or stasis. As a collective, the idea of Greekness was a very novel concept and one very rarely embraced. They would sooner war amongst themselves than band together as a united people. The times when they overcame their differences to face a challenge had become the stuff of legend. The battles of Salamis and Plataea are two prime examples. The latter we'll look at in exhaustive detail in a future episode. Alexander the Great's conquests are impressive, but he enforced hegemony upon a nation of Greeks who despised him as an outsider. Much more common were things more in keeping with the various episodes of the Peloponnesian War, a 27-year-long conflict between the respective alliances of Sparta and Athens that brought every manner of atrocity to the fore and bled the Greeks' manpower and resources dry. The Mycenaean world was one of warriors, city-states controlled by strong men exerting physical tyranny over their subjects. I mean, the guys jumped raging bulls in their spare time for fun. There is every reason to assume that the late 13th century was as vicious as the 5th century BCE. And worse, they were hungry, and there had been some nasty earthquakes of late. Since Heinrich Schliemann unearthed the remains of Troy and later Mycenae, the discussion of Homer's epic's historicity has vacillated back and forth. Whereas prior, the Iliad and Odyssey were considered works of pure fiction. In the past I've mentioned the lost Theban epic saga, and also written a brief article about it for my website, spartanhistorypodcast.com. Plug. Although extremely fragmentary today, I see no reason that they too couldn't contain a fact or two about a possible intergenerational war between two cities. The aforementioned Peloponnesian War certainly happened, and why not a similar war between Argos and Thebes in the Bronze Age? I haven't seen any discussion about the historicity of these lost works, but it stands to reason, considering the truths we've gleaned from Homer. According to the mythological chronology, the war known as the Seven Against Thebes happened roughly two generations before the Trojan War. Unsuccessful in the first attempt, the sons of the initial combatants duel it out a second time and finally take Thebes. The story is told in a lost work of the cycle known as the Epigony, or Progeny in English. Unfortunately, we only have the first line of this epic preserved and can but guess at its narrative. As the Archaeans took out their frustrations on Troy once her obstinate defences were breached, perhaps the Argives visited the same fate upon Thebes. Having been reared on tales of their father's failures and desiring vengeance, either way, like many other Mycenaean centres, Thebes too was burnt to the ground at the close of the Bronze Age. The evidence of this potential internal conflict 
two generations before the Trojan War, is even more significant when placed alongside some of the archaeology of the mid-13th century. We've already looked at the defensive upgrades of Mycenae and Tiryns. Both cities dug cisterns within their walls to provide a continual supply of fresh water during a siege. Features like postern gates and defensive bastions too began to be built in Mycenaean cities. There is some evidence for coastal piracy, or even sea people activity that we'll get to soon, so it's possible that coastal Tiryns suffered from such predations. Nevertheless, Mycenae, which was inland and relatively inaccessible to a seaborne attack, inevitably constructed its mighty defences for an invader that was a little more homegrown. At Nestor's capital of Pylos, excavators unearthed a massive cache of Linear B tablets in 1939. Typically, most of these inscriptions refer strictly to the administration of the temple-palace economy. But one of them relates to the amount of men due to serve in what appears to be the Coast Guard, as they are called watches of the sea. The scribe even records certain allowances for non-attendance. The question is, who were they watching for? Bear in mind that these clay tablets are from the last days of Pelos, as the fires that destroyed the city fired the tablets and preserved them for us. The date of its destruction has been set around the 1190 BCE mark, contemporary with many other Bronze Age cities that fell, Greek and non-Greek alike. In the previous month's episode, we learned about the volatile nature of the Mediterranean's coastal areas, culminating in the Sea People's collective efforts against Egypt. There is even reason to suspect Greece's mainland and archipelago of islands was similarly beset. According to expert translations of some other tablets in the Pylos archive, the locals were themselves the benefactors of piracy. A list of ethnic names, mainly female, refer to the western coast of Anatolia. We learnt previously that the Mycenaeans, or Achiawans as the Hittites called them, were exerting influence in that region and had control of Miletus and the offshore islands known as the Dolthacanese. There is also some suggestion that some of the names on this list are Trojan. Are these people the fruits of war and piracy conducted by the Mycenaeans? We'll never truly know, and in fact, the only way to tease out potential facts or possibilities is through educated conjecture. Before we move on to external conflict, a final word on another Linear B tablet from Pylos. The inscription in question makes a request of 32 regional officials across the kingdom to deliver all available temple bronze to the capital for reforging into spear points. As the other tablets, this one too dates to the year of the city's destruction, and clearly indicates that whether or not trade was still possible, the king needed every available piece of bronze for the war effort. When King Pyrrhus of Epirus crossed the Adriatic Sea to carve out for himself an empire in the Italian peninsula, or Magna Graecia, to the Greeks, he envisaged an easy conquest. A fair assumption on his behalf, he had a highly trained and motivated army who utilised cutting-edge technology for the time. Moreover, he landed in an area that was distinctly Greek and resentful regarding recent Roman hegemony. What he and many Greeks after him didn't account for was Roman obstinance in their seemingly inexhaustive supply of military manpower. Smashing the Roman army led by consul Publius Valerius Lavinius at Heraclea in 280 BCE, he sent terms to Rome and expected them accepted as was generally the way of these things. The Roman Senate rejected the terms offered and set about destabilising the loose confederacy of Pyrrhus and his Greek allies and making truces with the hostile Etruscans to the north. In the next year, they raised another army and sent it to meet the Epirate king under the command of consul Publius Decius Mus. The two forces squared off at Asculum in 279 BCE. The result was another victory for Pyrrhus, but like the first, it was a costly affair for the so-called victor with the bulk of his cracked troops, officers and elephants perishing. According to Plutarch, 
One of his remaining officers congratulated the king on his second victory against Rome. Pyrrhus replied, If we are victorious in one more battle with the Romans, we shall be utterly ruined. And so it came to pass the Epirate's star never again shone so brightly, and the term Pyrrhic victory was born. After a series of lesser and lesser wars, and later a defeat by the Romans in 275, he lost his life fighting in the streets of Argos, in a civil dispute rather than a war proper. Ingloriously falling to a roof tile thrown by the mother of the Argive soldier he was fighting in the city's narrow streets. Spine shattered, he collapsed and was beheaded. Hannibal too learnt the lesson of Roman intransigence to the detriment of his line and his people. After having smote three successive armies at the Trebia River, Lake Trasimene, and finally the disaster of Cannae, he believed rightly that ultimate victory was his. Not so, and he spent the next 15 years in a stalemate with the Republic, largely ignored by his aristocratically led people back in Africa. When Scipio, soon to be Africanus, invaded Carthage homeland in 203 BCE, that city's senate recalled Hannibal in a state of panic. Ever dutiful, the scourge of Rome returned and with his defeat at Zama, the Carthaginians capitulated in unconditional surrender. Losing their transmarine empire, renowned navy and city walls all in the process. Despite the three stunning victories, which history turns to time and again, Carthage exhausted itself in a bad war and suffered the consequences. These two examples are testimony to the old adage of winning the battle, but losing the war. It's such conflicts that I believe the Mycenaeans were engaged in during the closing phases of the Bronze Age, and the cost of them affected the individual kingdom's ability to recover. As we've seen the land is in famine, the ground was shaking, and there was always the perpetual concern of civil discord for the Mycenaeans. Extensive external wars can't have helped. Now where is the evidence for this type of conflict, I hear you ask? Apart from the archaeological remains of burnt cities, arrowheads lodged in walls and hacked bones, which are purely contextual in nature, we can turn our minds back to the works of Homer. Whilst the Iliad and Odyssey deal particularly with just the sort of war I'm talking about, if you take into account the broader epic narrative of the Trojan Cycle, there are a great many other wars buried in the narrative. Menelaus is attending his grandfather's funeral on Crete when Iris alights upon the island to inform him of Paris's perfidy. That guy. Returning to Sparta, he plans with his brother the Trojan War to return his errant bride. Just as they would later do again, the Greek leaders band together and assemble at Aulis to set sail for Troy. Instead of Priam city, they land at a city called Tuthrania, which is in ancient Mycenae and to the south of Ilion. They sack the city. Achilles does a bunch of Achilles things and a storm falls over the fleet as they sail away with plunder. Scattered by the tempest, the heroes and their men slowly coalesce once more in Greece. Due to this tale coming from the Proclan summary of the Kypria, there are massive holes in the narrative, but there it is, another conglomerate endeavour by the Mycenaeans, albeit a misguided one. The same summary also tells us of Helen and Paris's trip from Sparta to Troy, blown off course as well by a storm created by Hera. She really wanted that apple. They land at the city of Sidon, in modern Lebanon, sack the place and make off with booty and slaves. Homer in Book 6 of his Iliad even makes note of the Sidonian women's skill at embroidery and weaving, mentioning that they were indeed slaves and not willing travellers to the city. Unfortunately, due to ancient Sidon being located underneath inhabited, modern Sidon, excavations aren't as advanced as in other places. To my knowledge, no late Bronze Age disturbance has been recorded in the archaeology of that city, despite much damage across the Levant at the period. 
Even as the Archaeans first assembled at Troy and assaulted its walls, the siege is punctuated by the sacking and burning of many cities in the surrounding countryside. Most noteworthy is the city of Lenursus, home to Briseis, the woman who would catalyse the anger of Achilles. The Archaeans certainly weren't having a tea party outside the city for the entire decade, you can bet. All of these wars, battles or skirmishes are insignificant separately, but together show the warlike nature of the times and the Mycenaeans. Paris's pilfering of Sidon shows the Trojans too weren't above a little piracy, and I believe that this method of warfare was merely part and parcel of the epoch. Turning to the Odyssey, in Book 15, Odysseus is telling one of his many apocryphal tales that is resoundingly similar to the one told by the Egyptian pharaoh Menepta in his victory inscription. The complicated man describes his fleet sailing from Crete to the river Nile, where they set up camp. His men disobey his orders and plunder the countryside, killing Egyptian men and taking women and children as slaves. Pharaoh raises an army, defeats the belligerent Greeks, and in turn makes prisoners of the survivors. Odysseus even recounts that he dropped his helmet and weapons and made for the chariot bearing the king, where he clasped the supreme ruler's knees and kissed them. He was kept as an honoured guest slash prisoner for seven years before gaining his freedom. His men, it seems, are forced into labour and servitude in perpetuity. In his victory inscription of the 1207 BCE defeat of the Sea Peoples, Pharaoh Menepta describes the battle and victory as forces achieved over the Libyan-led Sea Peoples. Initially, the invaders caused much harm in the Nile Delta, as the Egyptian response was slow to confront. Eventually, Pharaoh's forces assemble, defeat their foes in pitch battle and carry off into indentured servitude the survivors. Knowing the Odyssey reasonably well, I was shocked when I first read the translation of the Karnak inscription. The historicity of Homer is always going to be a mercurial thing, but was the father of Greek epic recounting a version of this great Egyptian victory from the side of the losers? It most likely will never be resolved one way or the other, but the inference and possibilities of Odysseus's story tantalise the imagination in a big way. Regardless, put these semi-mythical stories up against the archaeological evidence for devastation across the eastern Mediterranean, and it's easy to envisage an age of blood and fire. During the classical age of Greek history, there was an impression amongst scholars of the time that the Mycenaeans could and would resort to piracy. Thucydides, the author of the Peloponnesian War, sums it up best as he compared the relative peace in the Aegean under the Athenian Thalassocracy to the heroic age. He says, and I quote, For in early times the Greeks and the barbarians of the coast and islands, as communication by sea became more common, were tempted to turn pirate. Indeed, this came to be the main source of their livelihood. End quote. I suggest that as their society continued to destabilise and fracture, this attitude is what led to a large portion of their population setting off in their vessels in search for something else. Try to imagine for a moment what it would be like if all of a sudden every oil deposit in the world inexplicably ran dry. There is a reason why our current era is known as the oil age in some circles. Here in Australia, we hold three weeks of oil in reserve for emergencies, but eventually that would deplete and society would come to a standstill. We are so addicted to the Texas tea that despite other alternatives, the world as we know it would change irrevocably. Life would indeed continue, but if all of the buried sunshine that has been stored underground since time immemorial ran out, it would be a very different life. Bronze was the oil of the Bronze Age, and without it, things drastically change. Strife, turmoil and unrest have major and immediate impact on trade practices. 
One need only keep an eye on the global stock market to see its retractions during any period of uncertainty. And uncertainty, to put it lightly, is exactly what I've been explaining over this in the last episode. Every indication from text and archaeology shows it was palpable. The Mycenaeans who lived on the relative periphery of the interconnected Bronze Age were at the mercy of such disturbances. Having no tin or copper to speak of, the two things required for bronze, trade was their only avenue. The other Bronze Age empires had their own copper deposits for the most part, and were closer than Greece to the source of tin in the Afghan mountains. It stands to reason that Greece had the most to lose from interrupted trade. Bronze was intrinsic to the Mycenaean rulers' ability to maintain structure in their individual realms. Farming equipment, weapons, armour, jewellery, tools, religious idols and affectations all required the alloy in their production. The centralised, palace-temple economy enforced a regimented and stratified society. This gave the stability required to organise, promote and engage in international trade. We've seen the island of Cyprus experience a lingering period of strife from around 1225 to 1175 BCE, a situation which definitely would have upset the largest source of copper in the eastern Mediterranean. The far-off supplies of tin presumably were always of a precarious nature, as with the supply of most precious metals throughout time. The 14th and 13th centuries saw the Middle Kingdom of the Assyrian Empire expand and exert dominance over the Mesopotamia and northern fertile crescent regions. Any overland route for tin ran through their burgeoning empire. It's also likely that this at the very least caused intermittent interruptions in supply. Grouping together these factors along with the general situation in Greece, a strong case can and should be made for a difficult environment for trade. Were shipments of copper and tin to reach the Mycenaean realm through a pirate-riddled sea, were there even any stable governments left with which to do business? I highly doubt it. Right, Hopefully I've spelled out enough evidence to have set the scene sufficiently for a late Bronze Age collapse. The problem with the period is that despite some fantastic work done by experts in their relative fields, no one has come up with a precise explanation as to why this mighty, interconnected group of civilizations fell so hard and so completely. The answer that fits best for me is one of a domino-like series of events, compounding and multiplying other factors resulting in an overall system's failure. But what happened to the Mycenaeans? Did they just disappear? Not at all, and despite massive population declines of anywhere up to 90% in Greece, those left were still indelibly Greek. They weathered the hardships of the Dark Age and emerged the other side of it into the renaissance of the Hellenic culture. Linear B text, as deciphered by Michael Ventris in the 1950s, was proto-Greek and became reimagined with the help of the introduced alphabet post-Dark Age to record the epic stories of Homer and his brethren, describing to the new archaic Greek world the deeds and legends of the powerful Mycenaeans. The Greeks of Homer's time knew intrinsically that they were descended directly from the likes of Archimedes, Menelaus, Achilles, and others. We've seen the droughts, the famines, the civil discord, war, loss of trade, and the other just as likely consequences of an entire framework of civilization in turmoil. An ever-industrious people, that 90% reduction of population didn't wither and forego life. They did what the Greeks have always done, became a diasporic people. I said at the beginning that I have a fascination with the repetitive nature of history, and firmly believe that it is the past's greatest gift to the future. The pity is that few look back to see the way forward. 
A great comparison to this dispersal could be the Viking Age which plagued the Christian and Islamic worlds for the better part of three centuries, but I don't need to use that one. There is something central to the Greek character that there are so many examples of that very type of event littered throughout Hellenic history. As power began to stabilise and centralise post-Dark Age, Greece began to experience a massive population increase. This put pressure on an already resource-poor land. Coinciding with the Archaic Age, the colonisation phase ran from around 750 to 550 BCE and saw the cities of the Aegean send out hundreds of expeditions to settle almost every shore of the Mediterranean and Black Seas. Some of these new settlements would go on to become famous in their own right. Massalia, or modern Marseille in France, Syracuse in Sicily, and Cyrene in Libya, to name but a slight fraction. Around 500 new cities were founded during this period, effectively doubling the number of Greek cities in the Aegean and accounting for over 40% of all Greeks in the Hellenic world. To be sure, the factors dictating this phase were indeed different to what occurred in the late Bronze Age, but the response was the same. Stay and suffer, or move, survive, and in some cases, thrive. For a situation that more closely resembles the period of our concern, the 20th century of the Common Era is ripe for comparison. After the Balkan War of 1912-13 and World War I, the Greeks in alliance with British, French and Armenian elements decided to perform the coup de grace on the defunct Ottoman Empire and carve up Turkey. At the time, and as many do still, the Greeks considered Asia Minor their ancestral lands, and after the Ottoman conquest of the Byzantine Empire, the land still had a significant Greek population. The alliance didn't count on the genius of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, the Turkish hero of the Gallipoli campaign in which my own ancestors too learnt first-hand of his brilliance. In a series of stunning victories, and against all odds he defeated all comers and founded the modern Turkish Republic. As an aside, I think he is one of the most brilliant men of the last two centuries and Turkey well needs another such visionary in this current age. Nevertheless, to resolve the seemingly perpetual issue of sovereignty, the Turkish and Greek governments agreed to a population exchange. Resulting in the forcible removal and relocation of 1.7 million Greeks from Turkey to Greece and around 400,000 Turks the other way. Known as ghost cities in Turkey, many of these abandoned cities lie vacant and untouched across the countryside. I've seen several firsthand and they are eerie to say the least, and a testimony to a more brutal and less empathetic time. The pressure this influx put on an already strained Greek economy can't be overstated. Add Nazi invasion and occupation during World War II, and the Greek civil war that followed, the country was strained to breaking point, and massive waves of emigration followed. The upshot of that is I can go down to my local Greek taverna here in Australia and enjoy amazing souvlaki and moussaka that the tomatoes will never match those found in Greece. Moreover, by population, Melbourne is the third largest Greek city after Athens and Thessaloniki, respectively. Greece today has a population of around 10 million, and some estimates put the diasporic community at around 8 million souls of Greek descent. The environment just described is just as apt for the late Bronze Age. The poorer sections of society hit the hardest with the first to leave. These joined other, disparate groups of people, remembering the afflictions of the time were broadly dispersed, whom they banded together with and went in search of succour. There simply was none to be found in a world so riven by disaster. I'm reminded of a Thucydidean quote from his Peloponnesian War in relation to the siege of Melos. The strong do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. 
The lens of time condenses events, but this was no single mass migration event and transpired over 50 or more years of time. In some instances, they burnt, sacked and pillaged. In some cases, they settled or were settled in turn. My strong belief is they became, at the very least, a significant portion of the mysterious people so theorised. They made their way down the west coast of Anatolia, turned east along its south coast leaving devastation in their wake. Bumping into the powerful island nation of Cyprus, they broke against her shores like a tide of humanity, raising cities where they could. Some found a land congenial to their existence and took root. This accounts for the distinctly Greek character of the island post-Dark Age. Some headed south to the land of milk and honey, Egypt. Either as soldiers of fortune or mercenaries, they joined the Libyans in invading the land of the pharaohs. As Menepta's Karnak inscription indicates, they had wives, children, animals and belongings with them. Not an army of invasion, but one of migration, and they were crushed. Regardless, the payment of blood secured the settlement of some at various strategic points in the Nile Delta or the Levant. Others went north from Cyprus and attacked a crippled Hittite empire, furthering that empire's woes and others still were drawn to the rich pickings of the Levantine coast. Ugarit is perhaps one of this conglomerate people's greatest victims. Some settled in the region of modern Palestine, but still more poured into Egypt from the east this time. It would be another pharaoh, Ramesses III, who bled them dry on the banks of the Nile. He went further still and enforced his will on these newcomers in the Levant, an area nominally under the control of Egypt. He smote the rest there, where the descendants of the sea people still live today. Tellingly, from 1200 onwards, the pottery excavated in the region of Canaan is known by archaeologists as Mycenaean ware. Though its quality is a far cry from its Aegean forefather, it was locally produced by Greek settlers in the region. This is typical, as the people most affected by strife were the poorest first and foremost, which is also why Linear B never transferred with this influx of people. The peasants in the field had no need of a script for recording bounty, concerned with subsistence as they were. The script disappeared in the Greek homeland as well. With the destruction of the palace economy, there was no longer any need for the written word. With the farmers and craftsmen gone, those who were once their betters had to turn their hands to survival and not recording a non-existent surplus. Unable to support their authority anymore, the kings of Bronze Age Greece became the target of those who remained and were once obedient. The Megarons, already damaged by earthquakes and denuded of defence due to famine, were burnt and torn down. The Dark Age had arrived. Colin Renfrew, MP of the United Kingdom, is also one of the premier experts in the study of collapse. In some of his most important work, he lays out some results for system decline that not only apply to the Greeks, but also hold true for many other societies, the Maya and Old Kingdom Egypt, among others. We'll check them off now. Organised, Central administration collapse? Check. Traditional elite classes disappear? Check. Centralised economy ceases to function? Check. Settlement shift and population decline? Double check. Most interestingly, he describes in the aftermath of collapse a temporary dark age followed by the creation of romantic myths of previous, better times. That would be Homer and Hesiod's Age of Hero and the epic sagas that came with. It's the natural cycle of empire and nation, and something we should be particularly concerned with in our own time. Although it's impossible to place any stamp of authority on the theories I've laid out over the past two episodes, I hope I've imparted, at the very least, their plausibility. We'll never know for sure what happened, short of a time machine, but encapsulating all of the available data, it's my best hypothesis. 
I really wish I had a microphone drop soundbite, as it would be appropriate right now. I leave the Bronze Age here, and we'll move into one, and I mean one episode only, on the Greek Dark Age. There is the archaeology and the mythology to consider, and both will have a distinctly Spartan feel to them. At this point, I'd like to offer my deepest gratitude to everyone who's stuck with me up until now. Understanding that I really haven't lived up to my podcast title thus far, your forbearance is appreciated. We now have an amazing body of work to refer back to when necessary, and a clear understanding of the demarcation between Bronze and Iron Age Greece. A sharp 180 degree turn will be made from here on in, and it truly will be the Spartan History Podcast. That being said, once again, I offer the invitation to join me on Sunday the 6th of September for episode 12 of the Spartan History Podcast, The Sons of Heracles. I can't wait to sink my teeth into it, and until then, dear listeners, take good care and speak soon. I mentioned the ancient Greek word for civil war earlier, stasis. When I first travelled to Greece, I had a reasonable understanding of some ancient Greek and some decent grasp of the modern tongue. The two dialects weren't necessarily separate in my mind, and I recoiled in horror as I overheard a conversation between two Greeks and heard the following. Seemingly innocuous, in the modern vernacular it translates, Do you know where the bus stop is here? However, I took the word for stasis as its ancient variant and thought they were talking about a civil war of buses. I don't even know what that would look like, but I was concerned to say the least, and it was my first time in Greece. Who knows what they do to their buses? Please check out my website, spartanhistorypodcast.com, where I have extra information, photos, and maps of the areas discussed. You can find me on Twitter at Spartan underscore history, and on Facebook too at Spartan History Podcast. If you like this episode and are keen to hear more, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you catch your pods from, and leave a review. See you next time.